Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. At the end of the day, uh, there is no benefit in having such a concentration of wealth. Uh, With a concentration of wealth comes a concentration of power, and we can't really uh, continue with this situation where, where billions of people across the world are both living in poverty and also disempowered. This episode of Women on the Line will focus on wealth inequality and women. In January 2016, Oxfam released a report on global wealth inequality entitled An Economy for the 1%. The title of the report stems from the stark statistic that the wealthiest 1% of the world now have more wealth than the rest of the world combined. The report indicates, perhaps unsurprisingly, that the global economic system is heavily skewed to benefit those at the very top, meaning that wealth is being actively siphoned away from those with very little at the bottom towards the super-rich. Crucially, it should be noted that rather than reflecting a static status quo, our global economic system is the result of deliberate policy decisions over the last 30 years. And not only are the resultant changes in wealth distribution recent, but these changes have also manifested faster than predicted. Women on the Line spoke with Helen Zoki, Oxfam's Chief Executive, about the implications of the report. I'm Helen Zoki. I'm the Chief Executive of Oxfam Australia. Uh, and Oxfam's part of a, a global confederation where we look at the issues uh, relating to poverty reduction. And certainly we do long-term development and humanitarian, but one of the really important things we believe is that we have to pull the big levers of change to make a difference, and hence the work that we've done around inequality fits into that basket. Mm-hmm. So Oxfam has released its report on economy for the 1% in January this year, and there are some quite alarming findings about what amount to quite recent changes to global wealth distribution. Yes, so we've been tracking the inequality gap. There's been a lot of gains that have been made since the Second World War on really people being uh, lifted out of poverty. But one of the things that's happened along the way is that the gap between the richest and the poorest has widened. And our report that we released in January actually gave the startling statistics that many of your listeners would have heard. So 62 people own as much wealth as half the world's population. So 62 people have as much wealth as 3.6 billion of the world's poorest combined. And... um, that um, happened, uh, that concentration of wealth happened much quicker than what we thought. So we, we actually think this needs some attention and we need to do something about the widening gap. Mm. It, it's absolutely uh, jaw-dropping, yeah, that's, that statistic. Yeah, and, and it's incredible, isn't it? It's hard to even get your head around it. Mm. And in Australia, as I understand it, since 2000, 50% of the total increase in national wealth has gone to the richest 10% of Australians. And in that same time period, the poorest 10% of Australians' um, share of that increased wealth is almost zero. So rather than a sort of this myth of the trickle-down effect, one of the things I took from the report that there's more, it's more a sucking up of, of wealth. Well, that's a really interesting metaphor to use. And it's very worrying because... Uh, You do think that um, with the investment that's been made in wealth generation and we think about Australia being a very rich country and yet the benefits of any progress not actually being felt by the people who are most vulnerable in this country is a real concern. Uh, And that's the trend that seems to be being replicated across the world. Mm. 
And in both a global and a local context, women are disproportionately affected by wealth inequality. Well, we are, and uh, there are many ways that this could probably be addressed, but that the key ask that um, Oxfam had, uh, particularly to coincide with the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, was that one of the most expeditious ways to try to deal with this issue of the widening gap between the rich and, and the poor is to actually look at the issue of tax havens. And again, our research shows that if you actually ended the era of tax havens, uh, you'd actually regain about $100 billion a year, which is lost to poorer nations, where multinational corporations and rich individuals actually put their money in these low-tax jurisdictions, and so the countries where they're generating their wealth actually aren't getting the benefit of um, the activities there. Tax is especially significant in discussions about wealth inequality because taxation revenue is what funds vital public services like health and education. I think the the figure that really um, stuck in my head was, you know, in the midst of the Ebola crisis um, and Sierra Leone was the the front line, I guess, of that crisis. And the reason that it was a crisis is because there just wasn't any public health infrastructure to deal with it. So many other African countries had had, uh, incidents of Ebola, but they quickly got it under control because they had the infrastructure and the social protections and the public health measures there for their community. Sierra Leone didn't and uh, they also had this amazing statistics where the subsidies that they were giving to multinational companies and and the tax advantages they were giving to multinational companies uh, that they were trying to attract to their country exceeded what they were actually paying in some of these social protections for health and education services. Mm -hmm. So very misguided use of resources. Um, in the interests of growth, but no benefits actually going to the community. Ideas around what could be described as market fundamentalism or the prioritising of a particular economic model above all else seem crucial. The report is especially clear about the significance of policy-driven change and its influence on wealth inequality. In the last 30 years, practices such as deregulation, privatisation, financial secrecy and globalisation have all led to changes in our global economic system which have heightened inequality. So we're constructing a system that puts the incentives in there for this kind of behaviour to continue. And uh, certainly a lot of the work that we do globally talks about um, the issues of transparency of um, companies and individuals that operate in multi-tax jurisdictions being clear about what taxes they pay, what royalties they pay, and uh, having a line of sight to those issues. Uh, Clearly, in many of the uh, countries that are still developing, there are issues around governance and the capacity of local governments to deal with some of these issues. But if we don't take the first step to try to put some uh, light on what's actually happening then we're going to really struggle to um, to deal with some of these issues. Mm. And, um, and that's going to be a problem globally then. This is not um, a problem that's just going to be for poor people. I mean, if we have these people that don't have access to education, that don't have access to the basics of food security and, um, and health services, uh, then uh, we're going to have many parts of the world where people are very unhappy and... We don't want to encourage that level of insecurity either. To try and combat some of these factors, Oxfam are calling for significant changes to tax legislation. This is an ask that we've made globally. Uh, It's timely in Australia where we're having a lot of discussion around taxation 
and uh, a lot of that discussion in Australia has tended to focus on how we're going to save money rather than looking at uh, the generation of additional revenues. Mm. Uh, we've gone part of the way in Australia with the changes that have um, have been made, but we also shouldn't um, we shouldn't uh, resolve from the fact that uh, 110 biggest companies in Australia have been looked at and a number of these have a presence in um, tax havens. So you know, companies like BHP, the ANZ, the Commonwealth Bank, the Tax Justice Network also looked at the top 200 listed companies uh, and where they were holding subsidiaries in tax havens or low-tax jurisdictions and, again, their household names. I mean, Toll Holdings, Rio Tinto, Leighton Holdings, AMP and Telstra... So there's a job to be done in Australia as well as a job to be done globally. But I think the other thing is that, you know, we're focused on that to coincide with the World Economic Forum. But we also need to focus on some other very basic things. And the living wage is another ask. Um, If we have, uh, in many countries, we have um, a minimum wage which isn't a, a living wage. And often this impacts really adversely on women who tend to be in uh, low-paid jobs. Uh, Oxfam's really shone a light on this area in terms of the garment workers and also uh, people who work in food production. Uh, And if if we actually had some agreement around what was a living wage in the various jurisdictions where we're sourcing this work, that could also make a big difference. Mm. So we need to have multiple strategies to actually address this issue into the future. Yeah, I I read in the report that between 2001 and t- 2011, wages for garment workers um, in the the top 15 uh, leading apparel exporting countries actually fell in real terms, and they're, they're, it's very gendered. So it's around the acceptability of paying women lower wages as sort of a key factor in increasing profitability for that industry. Um, yes, and, and we've we've done a lot of work uh, following the Rana Plaza collapse in um, Bangladesh. Uh, where the garment workers were killed to try and to draw attention to this issue of actually having a uh, a living wage. Um, fortunately, um, some of the people who are contracting work are, are putting this on their agenda. Uh, so again, it's it's part of the pieces of the jigsaw that are needed to actually make a difference. Helen encouraged listeners to take action. Well, if listeners want more information, we would encourage you to jump on our website at Oxfam, www.oxfam.org.au. Um, have a look at some of the material. Uh, we we um, obviously uh, are reaching out to our supporters uh, regularly um, for resources, but we also want your voice. I mean, we'll want you to sign a petition uh, that's on the website. We want you to actually say that you think this is an important issue for the Australian government to take up. Uh, we need your listeners' voices to actually help us uh, address this issue in the longer term. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you a discussion of global and local wealth inequality. To try and gain a more in-depth look at some of the factors in Australia which create wealth inequality, I spoke with Lynn Hatfield-Dodds. 
Okay, so I'm Lynn Hatfield-Dodds. I work with Uniting Care Network. I'm the National Director of Uniting Care Australia. Uh, Uniting Care works with uh, every year one in eight Australians who are either vulnerable or disadvantaged or both um, at every stage of people's lives. So we've got a fair bit of experience around wealth inequality, around um, exclusion and around lack of opportunity for people. And I guess... You know, as a woman and as a feminist, um, one of the things I've seen over the course of my life is is the fact that there are structural issues that make a huge difference uh, in terms of enabling or enabling women to participate um, equally in the community and, and reach their potential, and then a whole lot of structural issues that actually prevent all women from doing that, and particularly some that prevent um, low-income. Um, and low opportunity women from being able to participate properly in the community. Mm. And I think um, you sort of touched on one of the main issues in even discussing something like wealth inequality or, you know, maybe another way to describe it would be what causes poverty. And that's, uh, I suppose, the diversity in society and how difficult it is to speak in general terms about the structural issues, as you mentioned, that cause inequality. I mean, for example, Looking at Australian history, you have colonisation um, and then a history of class-based migration and leading to all of these different parts of society that um, experience things so differently. Yeah, look, that's right. I, so I think it's absolutely true that every every single person has their own experience. Um, but I do think, and, and I do think, um, you know, particular groups of people have different experiences. So you could cut the Australian population, for example, by ability or disability, by um, by impairment, by age, by, um, you know, a whole lot of things. Uh, I think I think one of the important cuts, you know, for this conversation is thinking about the Australian community by gender. And when you take a gendered look or a gendered analysis of the Australian community, you find some pretty disturbing things. So, for example, it won't surprise any women listening, I don't think, to hear that women still in 2016... Um, bear the very heavy load of, um, you know, what are euphemistically called domestic duties, all the crap stuff that needs to happen around the house, cleaning the toilets, making the food, you know, cleaning up afterwards, uh, all that sort of stuff. Women are still, um, the Australian Institute of Family Studies tells us, engaging in those activities at, at five or six times the rate of men. And it's not that men are saying we don't want to do it, when men are interviewed, they think they've stepped up to the plate. Uh, there's a massive difference there. We know that one in three Australian women in, um, experience domestic violence in any one year. And, um, you know, for women that are following destroying the joint on social media, they're keeping a very disturbing um, count of, of dead women. They're, they're calling it counting dead women. How many Australian women in our communities, in our families, in our cities, in our towns uh, are dying, you know, every week, every month through um, what's called now intimate violence? Um, the, other, the other statistic that always stuns me, every International Women's Day in March, I end up speaking somewhere and every year I hopefully go to the internet and do my Googling. And every year I'm disappointed around um, income uh, inequality. Still the case that in 2016 in Australia there's not a single skill, trade or profession in which women earn on average the same as men, let alone more than men. Um, in fact, on average, women across all the occupations we could choose to do earn 20% less than men. The only reason is gender. So there's a lot of... So I think I think it's absolutely true to say that every woman will have her own story. Each of us lives a different life. But there are some kind of 
structural issues that affect us all. You know, the rights issue about reproductive rights, um, the right to choose to marry who we want to marry, whether that person is male, female, transgender, intersex. We still don't have that right. We we don't have the right to um, equal pay. We don't have the right to equal opportunity yet. So I think there are some structural issues that, that it's incredible, but we still need to address in 2016. Mm. And I think that looking at those systemic factors as well as people's individual experiences seems really key to looking at this issue. It's almost as though you need both a micro and a macro um, approach to even begin to look at the changes that need to take place. Um, I think that I think that's right. It, it's um, it's got to be at both ends. So if you if you just try to work, you know, from the top down. There's, there's a bunch of things that, you know, governments can do in a social democracy that will make a difference or that we can choose to do collectively. But it's also things that need to happen in each person's life that, um, you know, they and the people around them, um, you know, you would hope can do. Uh, and the other thing I'd say, I think, is that um, for all of these issues, there are some women um, for whom the gendered issues are, are even more stark. And I think, you know, when you think about women who are already living in a financially disadvantaged situation, you know, women on welfare, women on parenting payments, their lives are far too often characterised by a kind of a hand-to-mouth scramble just to keep themselves going. And if they've got children, it gets even worse. So there's, you know, study after study, evidence piece after evidence piece that tells us that, um, you know, women who are who are already living in poverty, um, there are these poverty traps that it's just very hard for them to get out. We know that that a lot of women on parenting payment eat one, maybe two meals a day rather than three so mm-hmm. that kids can eat. We know that 80% plus of um, women, uh, single mothers, have year 10 as their highest educational attainment. And if you think about the kind of labour market and jobs that are available in Australia, there's a big gap between a year 10 skill set and the kind of job you need to access if you're going to be able to put a roof over your you and your children's head and, you know, feed them, clothe them, look after them. So there are some huge challenges. And I think that kind of income insecurity issue, housing insecurity, and, and that, you know, intimate violence um, are three toxic issues at the centre of what makes life really challenging for women who are who are struggling to make ends meet. These factors highlight again the relationship between the provision of services that can help support people experiencing these kinds of problems and taxation policy. When I raised this with Lynn, however, she emphasised the underlying factors contributing to these issues. Look, I, I think you're right. I think there are public policy um, and social and economic policy issues. I'm going to go to them, but I, just before I do, mm-hmm. I think the fundamental issue for me, I was thinking about this today before I spoke to you, I think the fundamental issue is one of culture. So, you know, people do a lot of analysis about gender inequity and, you know, does biology drive it? That was you know, decades ago. We're kind of over that now. But I still think there's a cultural issue where we enculturate um, girl children differently to boy children. I have two boys, and so now 19 and 23, I'm a strong feminist. My oldest son was about nine or ten months old before I realised he didn't have any dolls. So without, you know, and I was trying to, my partner and I were trying to parent in a in a consciously um, non-gendered way and we just kept tripping over ourselves all the time. So you kind of think, wow, and I, I'm sure there's heaps of women and men who've done it so much better than we did. But you know, I guess my point is that even trying to be thoughtful and reflective about how you parent children 
it's really difficult. Um, you know, when my kids were little, if they wanted to go to school wearing lots of pink and purple, which they often did with their hair in a ponytail, that was a bit of a big deal. It's less of a deal now. Mm-hmm. But we still enculturate genders. You know, you look at engineering um, full of men, social work full of women. Guess which pays more? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be an accountant full of men, pays heaps more than nurses full of women. Now, those those proportions are changing a bit but they're, they're not public policy questions. They're questions of, I think, community culture and the culture that we're all so steeped in we can't see it. So I think the public, so, and which is a, a segue for me to the public policy issues, which are real, but I think they're real, but they, their roots are flourishing in this kind of toxic gendered culture that we still actually promote. But you're right, um, uh, there are a whole lot of issues around tax and payments and policy. So a good example, I think, is around, say, retirement income, if we move to the other end of people's lives. There's a cohort of Australian women who are in, they're just hitting retirement now. They're just coming up to retirement age, um, mid to late 50s, um, some in the early 50s. And they're women who have um, very little or no retirement savings, mm-hmm. not because they haven't worked very hard, they have, but they're women who, um, you know, are at the tail end of mm, when you marry your partner, you probably need to stop working, or when you have kids, we expect you to stop working. And when your parents are older and need care, obviously you'll be the one. So they were stuck in that sandwich generation of caring for children and parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents. They've had enormous amounts of time out of the workforce. They've been in and out of the workforce. Their superannuation is either non-existent or pretty low. And so they're looking to a life on the pension. And I think that's not fair and it's not just because a lot of those women were partnered for a long period of their lives to men who are doing very well, thank you very much, because they've had you know, they've been putting into their retirement savings their whole uninterrupted working life. So I think there are things that we probably need to do. How, what can we do about superannuation, for example, mm. which is a big way that Australians save? And the other way Australians save, of course, is through bricks and mortar through the housing market. So how can we make housing more affordable, more accessible, and change some of the toxic tax, break, tax breaks? So I'm thinking things like, um, you know, capital gains and negative gearing mm-hmm. that really don't work for many Australians. Um, so I think I think there are a lot of things we could change if we wanted to, but it's having the will to change them. And I think it's starting conversations across our communities, when we have coffee with our mates, when we're having a, you know, a wine in the pub, whatever it is, we, we actually start talking about these things. And we just keep, we, I think we need to keep remembering to be uncomfortable or even outraged some days. Superannuation seemed to be one of the major recurring factors in my discussion with Lynn. On the topic of superannuation, I think it's um, Australian women put away on average about half as much super as men do. Um, I think it's. I think you're right. Yeah. It might be a little bit under half. And mm. the other reality, of course, when we're thinking about low income and disadvantaged people, of whom women are a massive disproportionate part, um, superannuation. Uh, I think it's something like eighty percent of the value of superannuation tax concessions accrues to the top ten or fifteen percent. Of wealthy Australians. So, listeners, you need to go and <laughs> go to the Australian Institute's website. I, I chair the board of the Australian Institute and we've done a whole lot of work on this. So, my figures may be slightly wrong in detail, but the broad brush sense is right. A huge amount of the concessional advantage is pointed towards the very wealthy. 
the poor either don't get any because they're not putting into their superannuation and the working poor get very little benefit. So one thing we could do immediately is address inequitous superannuation concessional arrangements. That mm -hmm. would not be hard to do and we could do it. But of course, uh, those who are um, doing very well out of the system continue to advocate that it not be changed. Yeah, and that has been a recent discussion as well as I understand it in policy terms, whether or not those um, super concessions should be should be changed. Look, that's right. Over the last 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, uh, superannuation was not on the table. When anybody talked about tax reform, if you raised super and, and the unfair nature of the concessional arrangements, people would poo-poo it. It's now, usually, it'll be super or GST that are the, one of the first two things that anybody talking seriously about tax reform will mention, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you touched on before as well. I mean, how how would you possibly deal with providing, you know, an equivalent super payment for all of the unpaid labour um, that women perform domestically? I mean, that's, I mean, is there sort of a model that could be put into place where people could, in practical terms, look at redressing that kind of imbalance? Or we can do it. I think you can do it a couple of ways. How politically palatable and economically palatable it is to Australia, you know, remains to be seen, but. You know, you could you could have arrangements so that anybody who was out of the workforce for whatever reason was able to continue to pay into their superannuation fund themselves. You could have arrangements where if parents of either gender were, you know, on parenting leave for a certain amount of time, their work would continue to co-pay. And in some places do that, mm -hmm. but we could actually legislate for that. Um, you know, and then we could look to other countries around the world that have universal pensions, universal um, support payments. So I think that all these kind of things are the kind of ideas that need to be on the table as a Turnbull government is getting, as I understand it, very serious about looking at not just tax reform, but reform of our whole payment system. I asked Lynn where listeners could find out more if they were interested in these kinds of policy discussions. Uh, if you people Google the Australia Institute and look at some papers um, that the Australia Institute has done, the Grattan Institute is another think tank that's done a whole lot of work. Um, and then I think if people Google, if you look at the Ken Henry uh, tax um, paper from, I'm trying to think when it was, the late... 2000s, 2008, 9, 10. But if, I think if you Google Henry Tax Review, you'll find a paper, and that's a pretty good blueprint. It's a it's a mainstream economic approach, but it's not a bad place to start when you're thinking about um, what to look for. The other place to look, of course, is um, ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services website. They've got a whole lot of really good materials up there as well. In beginning to address this topic, the dizzying size of the global economy is almost less intimidating than the question of how to engage meaningfully with the differing experiences of women and wealth inequality in the face of the intersections of gender, class, race, and especially in a place like Australia, the ongoing legacy of colonisation and imperialism. On top of this, the complexity of teasing out the threads of the different political ideologies which seem to be so entwined in any discussion about economics means that the approach to this issue this show has taken today is only one perspective in an array of lenses and voices needed to begin to make sense of capitalism and the causes of global wealth inequality. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.